This is Bob Kay, author of Key Players in AA History, and we're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. This is episode 20 of Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life, now with less dogma and more bite. We talked to Bob Kay, author of Key Players in AA History. We say thanks as Rebellion Dogs Publishing hits a meaningful milestone this week. I'll tell you what I'm reading now and hope you keep sending me notes on what's on your e-reader or bookshelf. More on that later. Sometimes at the 12-step district table or at service assemblies, I will joke with the archivists and say, what are you doing in archives? There's really no future in archives. Ernie Kurtz would disagree with me. If he were here today, he would quote Dickens and Goethe. He would tell us that those who have no memory have no hope. Memory in January is a time of loss as much as it is a time of hope, for lovers of AA history anyway. It's 2016, 45 years ago, January 24th, the day Bill Wilson died. January 19th last year, we lost Ernie Kurtz, author of Not God, a History of Alcoholics Anonymous, and two books he wrote with Catherine Ketchum, The Spirituality of Imperfection and Experiencing Spirituality. Uh, More on him, Ernie Kurtz, and his works later. Ain't it a kick in the gut to look at all we've lost this month, but still hope prevails as we see that these were just AA members, just like you, just like me, and perhaps we can play a role in creating and or preserving AA history or the whole recovery culture. In a 1966 letter, Bill Wilson wrote, AA was not invented Its basics were brought to us through the experience and wisdom of many great friends. We simply borrowed and adapted their ideas. Later this show, author of Key Players, Bob Kay, is with us to reminisce about AA history and shoot the shit a bit. If you haven't read Bob's book, it's a blast. Honestly, it's a history book full of humor, commentary, and relevance to today's life and times. At the time of editing this Rebellion Dogs radio show, number 20, I'm getting ready for a return to Sedona Mago retreat. This time it's the Symposium on AA History, March 4th and 6th, 2016. It's my second time in Sedona and my first time at this history symposium. There are speakers and panelists for three days, and I have the honor of talking about atheists and agnostics in AA. They'll talk about Lois K., Marty Mann, the LGBT community. Uh, It's kind of a spring break for geeks of AA and AA culture. We've hit a meaningful milestone in 2016. Beyond Belief is now found on 5,000 bedside or coffee tables, smartphones or e-readers. Besides offering thanks to everyone who's recommended the book to others or written a review on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anywhere, other than just saying thanks, we're going to talk about how it takes a community to raise a child 
and also to nurture a do-it-yourself book written by an indie author. Being as this took three years to get to this 5,000 plateau, uh, let's put it in perspective. Daily Reflections, the Daily Devotional by AA, sells 5,000 copies every 11 days. We're not exactly changing the industry, but we are being heard in places where there's a demand for a secular look at recovery. So a big thanks right now to everyone who's helped. We'll have a bit more later, and we'll open our book, so to speak, and talk about what this modest success has meant to Rebellion Dogs Publishing. No one's quitting their day job, uh, but we're happy and grateful. On the anniversary of Ernie Kurt's death, I posted on Rebellion Dogs Publishing site a speech he gave in September of 1997 for a gathering of AA archivists in Akron, Ohio. It's still available there if you want it. He said, Preserving AA's history, its story, is our most important task. For whether we be alcoholics or simply lovers of AA's wisdom, it is by telling and hearing their stories that Alcoholics Anonymous heals alcoholics and passes on its wisdom. As its name makes clear, Alcoholics Anonymous is its members, and so its stories and its members' stories are one and the same. In my years traveling and speaking, I have, whenever possible, urged AAs to investigate and preserve their own local stories. How did AA get to this place? When did the second group start, and why? Have you had any especially talented sponsors or 12-steppers? What kind of meetings do most prefer? Has it always been thus? Have treatment programs had any impact on local AA? And on and on and on, as they say. It is thus a special privilege to be invited to address a gathering of AA archivists at their annual meeting in Akron, Ohio, in September 1997. So that whole speech is still available, and I couldn't recommend it more. Roger C., just got back from Olympia, Washington, as some of you might have. It was the first secular AA conference in the Northwest, January 16th, called Widening the Gateway, Overcoming Barriers to Joining the AA Family. Roger of AA Agnostica compiled a great history of agnostic AA meetings dating back to the first Quad A Alcoholics Anonymous for Atheists and Agnostics in Chicago in 1975. Since the first meeting, secular AA grew to just under 40 secular AA meetings at the start of the century. In 2002, AANYCAgnostics.org started posting a worldwide directory. From San Diego to Boston, outside the USA, too. Today, over 300 meeting nights per week, there is an agnostics, atheists, and free thinkers group that offer a no-prayer offering of AA sobriety. I'll be definitely borrowing from Roger's notes. 
I've spent time at AA archives at the General Service Office in New York City. I was looking into the history of the Trustees Literature Committee's visiting requests from the fellowship and conference to create a pamphlet for atheists and agnostics by atheists and agnostics in AA. Of course, we're not talking about the I was mad at God and defied him when I got here until I came in line and obeyed my higher power definition of atheist. That is not atheist. While yes, there are some atheists who through examination and personal exploration come to believe in the divine, just as there are some who start to question the deity of their childhood and become apostate, they let go of God, so to speak. People do cross that line. But an atheist can't be mad at something they don't believe in. Angry at God, defying Allah, Yahweh, Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu, is not a non-believer. Both anger and defiance characterize a rebellious true believer. At the time Alcoholics Anonymous, the book, and the fellowship were being crafted, John Buchan, a Scottish author and diplomat, was the Governor General of Canada. He wrote detective novels, he held diplomatic posts in South Africa and Canada, and he died in Montreal in 1940. He was quoted as saying, an atheist is a man who has no invisible means of support. So in this regard, an atheist would have no supernatural power to be angry at or to defy. Supernatural notions would never come to mind for an atheist regarding matters of health, death, morality, or the history of the universe. Now let's go back to these requests for an AA pamphlet. In 1975, a letter was sent to the General Service Office and turned over to the Trustees Literature Committee. In his letter, Al L. from Florida wrote, Question. Is it possible for the powers that be in AA to publish a pamphlet designed specifically for agnostics. I don't mean the big books version, chapter 4, We Agnostics. That doesn't make sense to me, never did. Many agnostics believe at first that AA, with all of its let God do it, and that one is God, may you find him now, is really a thinly veiled attempt to shove religion down their throats. You and I, of course, know that isn't the case. I would not advise that such a pamphlet for agnostics imply or infer that God will get you sooner or later, or that you will necessarily come to believe in the power of prayer, or that you must turn it over. My logic, common sense, and dedication to AA keeps me sober, and I don't think the non-spiritual have been given a fair shake. In February 76, the Trustees Committee appointed a subcommittee to study the issue and report back. At the July 1976 Trustees Committee meeting, the subcommittee presented a preliminary report recommending the publication of this pamphlet. However, October 1976, the Trustees Committee decided not to forward this item to the Convention for Consideration. It seemed like an idea worth considering by the Literature Committee, but then it was mothballed. 
Similar requests resurfaced from AA trustees and delegates from members, districts, and areas in 1981, 1988, 1995, 1997, and 2000, and again in 2008. A district in Hawaii voted unanimously to ask Alcoholics Anonymous to develop a new AA pamphlet, which includes current experience and personal stories from members of AA who have the following characteristics. One, they have achieved and maintained sobriety within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And two, they would describe themselves as atheists and agnostic to this day. This request was voted on by Hawaii's District 11 and passed unanimously. It was then forwarded to Hawaii's Area 17, where it was passed with substantial majority. Rick H. of Hawaii wrote to GSO, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such thing as being too late. Alcoholics are dying needlessly. Let us stay in the business of saving lives and not let false perceptions of AA drive people away. Let us be proactive in our inclusiveness. Let us carry the message to all alcoholics. Six times this issue has been raised and six times the past literature committee has failed to let the conference as a whole vote on it. A time comes when failure to act becomes immoral. That plea was 2008. It fell on deaf ears, maybe willfully blind eyes as well. There are none so blind as those who will not see. All, if not most, minorities that have asked for a pamphlet to tell their stories of common suffering and recovery in AA, in their own words, every time it's been asked, this has been accommodated. We've taken steps to accept and publish narratives by and for women, the young, the LBGT community, armed forces, personnel, visible minorities, and members with mental and physical challenges. And we have pamphlets for all of these minorities. What Hawaii was pointing out in 2008 was, how can you say yes to everyone except this growing minority of unbelievers? or anyone for that reason, who isn't being true to themselves when repeating the phrase, God could and would if he were sought. AA is not an all-or-nothing proposition. We know so little. More has been revealed. People without supernatural beliefs have the same successes, the same Failures, the same imperfection in AA recovery as people who claim that they are God conscious. Before 2008, every one of these times a literature committee faced this ought we, can we, is it a priority questions, it may have been in ignorance of the other proceedings. Each might have had mitigating circumstances. Here I'll throw them a bone in. 1975-76, while the committee deliberated on the request for an atheist agnostic pamphlet, Barry L. 
an AA staffer who had crafted Living Sober, was now spending his time putting together Do You Think You're Different? This pamphlet had one story of an atheist and one of an agnostic. The full lineup of pamphlet P13, 1976, now includes Gloria, Black, Louise, 79 years old, Podrick, Gay, Ed, Atheist, Paul, Native American, Diane, 15 years old, Michael, Clergy, Mary, Lesbian, George, Jewish, Anonymous, Movie Star, Phil, Low Bottom Drunk, Jim, High Bottom Drunk, and Jan, Agnostic. So my point is that maybe the committee, with a clear conscience, concluded that let's give Do You Think You're Different a try. Maybe it addresses the demand for atheist agnostic stories. That might have been the case in 75-76. But moving forward to 2008, the committee knew that this had come up six times before, and every time unbelievers were denied. Hawaii knew that the unbelievers had been denied. If six other committees could deny accommodating the unbelievers, the 2008 committee would too. The rationalization? The committee notes that there was ample sharing in existing AA literature to reach atheists and agnostics. You give that a thumbs up or a thumbs down. In the Bible, Peter denied Christ three times. This marks seven times that GSO has denied atheists and agnostics. The next time around, the trustee committee saw the value in such a pamphlet, put our request for stories out there, and received, I think, in the neighborhood of 200 responses. They put that into a pamphlet form. They brought it to what I believe was the 2012 General Service Conference, and it was the conference not the trustee committee, that said no to a pamphlet of stories of atheists and agnostics. We're using some strong language in our shows, willful blindness. We've used the term systemic discrimination before. These words might be damning, and they may offend or shock any member who wishes to see our fellowship as inclusive and diverse. The truth is that on this matter anyway, we show favoritism and we turn our back on a particular minority. So there are three things that my presentation in Sedona will look at. AA agnostics and free thinker groups and our rapid growth to meet the appetite for a secular voice in AA. Agnostic atheists on the world stage, including the We Agnostic panels that have been part of the AA International World Convention every five years, going back to 1995 in San Diego. And finally, what my research uh, reveals uh, from the many attempts to create more inclusive AA literature, especially for non-believers. Up next, Bob Kay. He's an emerging AA historian. We love a lot of books at Rebellion Dogs. Over the last year, we've talked to Dr. Joe Nowinski about his book on the science of 12-step recovery, 
Mark Lewis about the disease model of addiction, Erica Spiegelman about authenticity and other processes to rewire the brain in recovery, Jack Grisham, last episode, episode 19, talked about principles of recovery, Dr. Tim Bilkey, he talked about ADHD and addiction, Dr. Vera Tarman of the Renaissance Treatment Center in Toronto talked about food addiction and her book, Food Junkies, The Food Supply, Junk Food, Nutrition, and the Role of Food and Nutrition in Recovery. Hi, this is Dr. Joe Nowinski, and we're listening to Rebellion Dog Radio. On to uh, Bob Kay. I love his book, Key Players in AA History. I already knew about many of the people that he covered in his writings, but his writing style is so much more entertaining than everyday biographies. He speaks candidly as an insider, an AA insider, about these people who have shaped the truths and the myths that we call 12-step culture. Here we go with Bob Kay. You weren't planning on writing a book about key players in AA history. You wrote an essay, got some feedback from that. How did the process of writing key players in AA history come Okay, about? that's a good question. Uh, uh, it started with an essay I wrote for the grapevine about the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. which I am militantly crazy against. <laughs> the use of an AA drives me crazy. I submitted that to the grapevine, did tremendous research getting it ready. Uh, the famous Mel B, uh, old history guy who's about 69 years sober now, still going strong, had just written a piece on the pro side. So mm-hmm. I thought in the interest of balance, they might... Uh, anyway, I did Supreme Court research and all kinds of crazy stuff and uh, uh, put this essay, essay together that in retrospect was too long, mm-hmm. uh, but they rejected it ultimately after about two months of uh, waiting. I ended up getting that essay on uh, Rogers' agnostic website. Anyway, he liked the way it was written, asked me to write some more stuff. Uh, I've had ambitions in that direction for a long time. And uh, I used to write for Toronto Intergroup newsletter about the big book, mm-hmm. strangely enough. <laughs> and uh, so uh, anyway, I started writing these history essays. I, I had a big history interest from the beginning. When I uh, joined AA in 1991, I was pretty quick reading all the conference-approved stuff mm-hmm. and disappointed that there wasn't more. And mm-hmm. in, in those days, uh, there was a lot more. Yeah. I have probably three shelves of books right now directly related to AA, recovery, alcohol, alcoholism, and uh, there's a wealth of stuff out there. And uh, anyway, so I started writing these essays for Roger. At one point in time, I had about 12 or 13 or 14 up on all various different characters. And uh, So I, who, who were some of the first 10? Ebby, mm-hmm. did one on Ebby. Uh, I did a kind of group essay that uh, I'm, I'm in the process of writing a second book. In the second book, a single essay that I did for Roger will be four essays. Okay. And that's the Richard Peabody story. Great. Yeah. Uh, Courtney Baylor. That yeah. took, anyway, the Richard Peabody essay, I read his book a couple of times. Incredible amount of quotes just taken directly out of there. Half measures. Uh, uh, half yeah. measures are of no avail. Yeah. Uh, a drunk, once a drunkard, always a drunkard. Yeah. And, uh, and there's just several more that are so-so the same. 
Uh, I was reading a different book the other day that said uh, Courtney Baylor, who I don't know as much about, but the Peabody predecessor, part of his treatment, uh, they had something very, very similar to step four, five, six, and seven. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that sort of uh, the self-examined life. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, then I did some interesting ones. Uh, Charles Towns, who had the Towns Hospital, uh, very interesting character, and uh, um, you know, really a P.T. Barnum type of scammer type. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. You know, in it for the money, kind yeah. of a, a closer to uh, the Scientology guy than uh, you know <laughs> Walter Mayo in the Mayo Clinic. Yeah. Uh, now you mentioned uh, Ebby, right? We seem to have a difficulty in AA honoring. Uh, members that were key players in AA history that didn't die sober. Right. Somehow their contribution is less, or we better not talk about that. Yeah, I think the Ebby, there's a little more to it than that, but that that's a big part of it. I mean, uh, um, you know, it's like having Bristol Palin fronting for uh, abstinence and <laughs> yeah, having yeah. her second kid out of wedlock. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, Ebby running around drunk as the founder of AA. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get where that doesn't make sense. The second thing is uh, Ebby was a spoiled rich kid, silver spoon guy. Mm-hmm. And when that inheritance money all got frittered away, uh, he wasn't a big worker, whether at work work or... Mm-hmm recovery work yeah. and he was lazy and a moocher and uh, um, Lois is unkind Ebby in, in her Lois remembers biography yeah oh. yeah and uh, yeah he wasn't a roll up the sleeves kind of guy no. he, although he had a very similar background to uh, Richard Peabody yes indeed he did yes and, uh, you know sort of and uh, no doubt uh, Roland who found his way into uh, Carl Young's office in the uh in the introduction of my book, and I just briefly lay out what it is, and there's different parts. There's a woman's section, a founder's section. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a part that has uh, Carl Jung and uh, Silkworth, mm-hmm. uh, you know, characters that we hear about a lot and maybe don't necessarily know so much about, William James. So I yeah. researched the background of them and bring like a seven or eight page mini biography. And this stuff intrigues me. I called it my rogues gallery, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, Ebby Thatcher, uh, Roland Hazard, uh, rich guys who mm-hmm. went bad. Yeah. And there's just something fascinating about that. And uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a great Gatsby thing. Rich people are different than yeah. us. Is mm-hmm. uh, Fitzgerald attitude? And uh, uh, Hemingway said, "Yeah, they've got more money." <laughs> Now, one of the great uh, historical facts that no one will be able to uh, repeat is uh, your book, the um, uh, foreword, is co-authored by Bill White and Ernie Kurtz, and it was the last thing he did before he passed away. Yes, indeed. What, what, what did that mean to you to have those uh, it's two just, people? It's, I'm an AA history fan. There's a little uh, cadre of geeks around uh, North America that are like that. You're one of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a small, small thing. But these guys are Bobby Hull and Frank Mahovlich to yeah. me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just when uh, <laughs> when Roger suggested he might be able to get these guys, I go, oh, look, you're in dreamland. And I thought, this is never going to happen. And uh, 
I mean, it was a real act of kindness on their part. Uh, they're, you know, kind of reaching downward. I'm an amateur in the history writing business. These guys have dug through archives and stuff. What I did was I probably read 45 books to write a book. Mm-hmm. So, a little different. Sure. But, uh, but it, it, that speaks of the democratization of not only the publishing world, but uh, uh, AA per se, in the same way that if you want to write a book, you can. Right. Uh, it, and the music business saw the same thing, where it used to be if you didn't have a record deal, yes. you were never going to be heard. Now it's not necessarily the, the case. publishing changed even more with this print on demand. Yeah. I mean, I know people that wrote books bought the two or three thousand copies that was the minimum to get a reasonable price and have 1,800 of them in the basement or in the garage or in the closet. Uh, most of these books are a limited market thing and the, the print on demand, uh, um, you don't have to order any up front. Yeah. Uh, I, bought, I bought 250 and Roger suggested that was too many and I've gone through those. Mm-hmm. I sold about half of them locally I mailed some out, autographed and stuff, to the states and uh, through internet contacts, and I gave a hundred away. Yeah. Uh, when you write a book, uh, you tend to give a bunch away, maybe. So. Yeah, you do. Yeah. I mean, I love giving books to people. Yes. I've always done yes. that, right? You know, so uh, if you happen to have a stack of them. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm a book guy. Yeah. And a book with my name on it, yeah. Yeah, albeit uh, last initial only, yeah. is pretty special. And, yeah. uh, uh, I, I gave that some consideration. I think I reveal my AA membership within the book. Yeah. If I'd have written the book in such a way not to do that, I could have put my name on it. Yeah. Uh, there's some advantages and disadvantages. Exactly. But uh, it's a bell you can't unring. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, people mistakenly think, oh, he wrote an AA history book and put his last name on it. People can do that without yeah. revealing their membership. I mean, people write history books about uh, stuff. So. I honestly didn't know uh, Ernie Kurtz was Ernie K. Until long after, I, I did not know that till fairly recently. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, the guest host, nineteen seventy-five, yeah. he yeah. went. Just by uh, referencing Ernie, we're coming very much up on his one-year anniversary, yeah. uh, January nineteenth, and I, I'll have a little tribute uh, online a few places uh, nice. about Ernie. And yeah. uh, I actually teared up when I was writing it. Oh yeah, yeah. He's. Uh, um, I was writing about him recently and just saying that. Uh, uh, you know, through it was one of the benefits of writing the book I wrote that I came to know him, and uh, we would talk from time to time, and he would have seen us as allies or peers, but I yes. never got past hero worship. Yeah, same as me. <laughs> I have to tell you a little funny story, and it's in the tribute a bit. Uh, like I open up the A Agnostica, and. I'm the number two contributor to that website for Mm -hmm. volume of material and times on there behind uh, the webmaster. And uh, anyway, I come on the first time I saw a comment with Ernie Kurtz. Uh, you know, is it, you know, That's Ernie friggin' yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he wrote one, you wrote something, and I can't remember what it was. I'm sure you'll probably remember. But he was glowing about it. Joe, you far outdone yourself. Your stuff, I normally love it. This is over the top. And just a rave. He did the same thing about Roger's history of uh, agnostic groups. Yeah. 
So anyway, I opened up this uh, Charles Towns essay probably around three years ago, and uh, uh, you know, I, in a quest for some self-esteem, mm -hmm. I'm looking for comments, and here it is, the Ernie Kurtz comment, and it's like, uh, so who went to China? Was it uh, was it Charles Towns or was it Lambert? And I'm going, why is he asking that? And my sentence structure was kind of screwed up. Yeah. And uh, Ernie Kurtz, for those that don't know him. Uh, uh, Catherine Ketchum, who co-authored a couple of books with him, experiencing spirituality of imperfection, the wonderful books. And uh, um, Ernie told her in the first interview, she says, "I am." He said, "I am hard to work with. Mm -hmm. I get crabby, mm -hmm. and that crabby comes from perfectionism." So, in in the, in my golden ticket, Ernie Kurtz comment. First, he tears apart, and I go through and I read, and I go, "Oh, now I get it." It's yeah. just. And the second part is, oh, you make reference to Bill Pittman's book, uh, The Roots of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then he says, have you read uh, Pittman's book, AA, The Way It Began? And I know, no, I haven't, and whatever. Well, they're the same goddamn book. He was <laughs> mocking me a little bit, my amateurish thing. And, yeah. and uh, I think the upside of that was... Uh, uh, then I did the Ernie freaking Kurtz thing, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, he really liked that. He yeah. came on another time, and I said, oh, God, I got books at Ernie, Kurt, Ernie freaking Kurtz, and he came back on and commented something, and he said, uh, a, a good sense of humor is a sign of good recovery. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of like an amend type of thing, and uh, I suggested in the tribute to him, uh, the forward to the book thing was, if he had done anything that hurt my feelings, he was more than making up for it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and anyway, like I had an email thing with uh, Bill White yeah. uh, recently, and it's just like I'm thrilled with this stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I just turned 66 years old, and this writing a book thing, if anybody has it in the back of your mind, get out and try and do it. It's just been a, a wonderful experience, a lot of work, yeah. uh, but work that I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, just to have it in your hand and done, uh, we could have gone to pre could have gone to direct an ebook, but I'm an old school guy and I yeah. wanted books, book books, yeah. and uh, it's just been a tremendous experience. Uh, let's talk about some of the, uh, what I would call the persistent myths or the hotly debated topics uh, in AA. Uh, one of them, you took some heat over uh, on the AA History Lovers uh, Yahoo page about bringing up uh, the notion that uh, Bill Wilson's spiritual experience was uh, drug-induced because of the belladonna treatment. That, that caused you know, uh, a fire under okay. the butts of many, right? Give uh, uh, anyone listening the uh, backstory to, you know, did well, he, didn't he? First of all, the, the interesting thing to me, now, he's in the hospital room. I personally don't think it was drugs. I think it was an act of the will. Mm -hmm. It was just... I'm in this absolute desperate circumstance. I have this old friend of mine who was a drunken buddy, as bad as I was, and now he's sober, and he's pushing this God stuff on me that I'm really not too keen on, and what the hell, let's give it a try. And his spiritual experience was identical to the one experienced by his grandfather right. uh, 57 Mountain years before. Top, so his... 
grandfather actually climbed up the nearby Mount Aeolus. Aeolus is a Greek name for windy, so his wind was real. <laughs> a cool wind a blowing, it was a blowing. And, uh, you know, he's staring, probably staring up. That's where we're supposed to look for God, up. Yeah. What we don't know is his blood alcohol level at the time. This was yeah. a Sunday morning, mm -hmm. and uh, I suspect it wasn't zero. Yeah, so anyway, Bill Wilson's in the hospital, and it may have been drugged. They're backpedaling like crazy, saying, oh, Silkworth had changed the treatment and whatever. Did you know that Dr. Bob used that treatment on some people in the later 1930s? Yeah. So... You know, this defunct, supposed defunct treatment, oh, he didn't have any drugs in his system. Well, of course he did. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, whether it was Hanbane or Belladon or whether they had altered the formula or lit him. Gave him. Yeah. The other thing, the, the fundamentalists say, well, he had had the Belladonna three times previously and this didn't happen. Well, any of us that have taken drugs, <laughs> I mean, come on. Yep. It's not identical every time. Well, every you trip's know. a new experience. I mean, the first time I uh, had marijuana, it was funny. Uh, uh, I was a 60s uh, semi-hippie, and... Um, but I was a drinker, and I, I could see I was a drinker, mm -hmm. and I kept saying no to the drugs, and they were everywhere, and I was like a non-drug-taking freak. And when I finally smoked pot out of just the curiosity got to me, probably third-year university or something, uh, you know, I think it was 97% oregano or something, because I got absolute zero. <laughs> <laughs> what have been making all the fuss about? Yeah. This is nothing. <laughs> The other thing uh, with the the Bill Wilson legacy is did he didn't he uh, Bill Wilson the skirt chaser and you wrote a this, little bit about that. This is the one that I took the heat for the yeah. most. Uh, the uh, the fourth chapter of my book I did four chapters on Bill Wilson. I own nine biographies of Bill Wilson, so he's been written about to death. I did the first two chapters. I thought it'd be interesting. I did prequels to Bill's story. Mm -hmm. So he did his childhood, which yeah. he skips in his story. Mm -hmm. Fascinating uh, childhood. Uh, adult child of alcoholic. Yeah, and um, yeah, interesting family background. I mean, his mm -hmm. mother was a smart, smart woman, but borderline mental case. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't know what she'd be diagnosed as today, but neurotic would be the least of it. Yeah. And uh, uh, she laid a beating on him when he was a uh, young child. Mm -hmm. that was beyond how uh, uh, even a hundred years ago beyond how you know a real woodshed type of thing mm -hmm. from the mother mm -hmm. and he remembered that yeah. uh, that made a deep impact and uh, ironically Clarence Snyder the uh, the guy that was the honcho of Cleveland, kind of mm -hmm. the third main city, had exact same experience. Yeah. He, he knocked over some Christmas tree or something, broke some ornaments when he was two years old. His mother thrashed him yeah. as a two-year-old. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Today, she'd be in jail. In jail, just, that's right. Yeah. Uh, there would be, well, the kid had it coming uh, Yeah. 1902 or something. Yeah. Was Bill or was Bill not a womanizer? And, and here's a, um, we found a great quote from Winston Churchill that we put at the start of the essay, and it was something to the effect of, in the absence of facts, we have to go with the stories and the gossip if we have nothing else. And what we have uh, on Bill Wilson is, yes, uh, uh, there's no video, and uh, uh, you know, there's uh, if if any people came forward with. Uh, uh, ill-begotten children or whatever that got hushed up but we, we don't know that stuff we do know that um, 
he left a bunch of money to his long-term mistress. Uh, he got in a, a, probably around 1955, got in a very serious love relationship with this other woman. Uh, the people that want to tone the Bill Wilson stuff down say, oh, that put a complete end to his flirtation, they like to call it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, Bill Wilson was seen at AA meetings, you know, with his hands on younger women's knees or whatever. To me, if he didn't sleep with any of them, that's even worse. You know, like one of those Letcher guys that's uh, pawing people and not getting any. I mean, is that better? Uh, and he may have been like that, but... Uh, no if you talk to a psychologist, yeah. people don't start having adulterous affairs when they're 55 years old. Mm -hmm. I mean, he confesses in the big book to, you know, essentially going back to other women's places and, you know, fill in the blanks. Uh, we see it in the two wives. If uh, your husband has been, uh, you know, looking the other way, maybe uh, that's you, not him. Yeah. Uh, and then step nine, yeah. except when to do so would injure them or others. Here's a uh, biography written by somebody called Matthew Raphael, which uh, he, he's an AA member and he used a pseudonym, mm -hmm. so uh, not his real name, but he really gets into what's in the book and the misogyny mm -hmm. and the you know, kind of uh, Bill Wilson, the rigors of the financial amends, but, you know, infidelity, ah, let's just uh, let that all be a thing of the past. Yeah. You know, let's mm -hmm. not make a big fuss over this. Mm -hmm. uh, your husband might get upset and go seek company with, uh, and it might not be another man. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, there threatens the spouse. Yeah. But anyway, apart from that, there is an accumulation of the gossipy type of thing. It's not right. from one bigger, bitter rival. It's from all over the place. Yeah. They uh, run into some old Oxford group guys, and they said Bill was always bragging about his Wall Street uh, conquests mm -hmm. uh, back in the day. And, uh, uh, you know, there's the rumors of the founders' uh, watch where at conferences they would get a bunch of people to steer them away from hitting on uh, women. Uh, I, I think it's pretty, pretty clear that uh, he had a variety of girlfriends. And quite frankly, I'm not that upset about that. I think him and Lois had an understanding. I think it was basically unspoken, but this was a different era almost 100 years ago. You know, he's not the only guy to do it. John F. Kennedy, uh, etc. I mean, the bigger thing to me is we don't need a uh, squeaky clean founder for Alcoholics Anonymous. I like that we he's. We can lead with. I like that he's flawed because Joseph, I am flawed. Yeah. You are probably flawed <laughs> uh, in in different ways, uh, and you know, if we had some. Uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Thomas Aquinas, or I'm thinking of the St. Francis of Assisi type of guy. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I just, that doesn't, I like that the, uh, there's a little mess up and he made some bad decisions uh, on the LSD thing. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. It just, it just, yeah, again, uh, no one will ever have a better title for a book than the spirituality of imperfection. Great. I mean, it yeah. was, he created a good enough program. And, and then Ernie's, Ernie's, one of Ernie's great lines, my specialties are history and imperfection, 
not necessarily in that order. Yeah. Uh, just what a wonderful, uh, <laughs> a great line. Exactly right. AA history is full of some bright spots, some erroneous conclusions. I mean, the, the Herbert Spencer quote, no one knows for sure if Herbert Spencer ever said it. He certainly never wrote it. Michael St. George is the guy that went dug all this up, and he went through all of Spencer's writings and proved that he didn't write it. Right, yeah, that's uh, right. But I don't think he proved that he didn't say it. Exactly. And the quote from the previous guys wasn't the same. Wasn't, now, the yeah. phrase was there, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that last little bit uh, of contempt prior to investigation. Yeah. But the quote is a longer quote than that. So. Yeah. Uh, I, I liken the possibility, and, and I, I run across Herbert Spencer in a couple of books unrelated to Herbert Spencer, that, uh, as happens sometimes. And um, anyway, Herbert Spencer was a real cocktail party type of guy, sort of an Oscar Wilde type mm-hmm. of thing. And, and I'm sure a lot of Oscar Wilde quotes aren't things that he wrote. It's just he said it. and. Uh, some you know, uh, opportunistic uh, journalist wrote it down. it down. Well, yeah, and, yeah. and then it got passed down in yeah. an oral history or yeah. something. So, so yeah. so yeah, it could have been, might have been, might not have been. It's just another yeah. one of those things. It's yeah, not that the, the, important. I mean, there's a whole other, uh, like back to the bill messing around. Uh, we want this mythology of it all being perfect and inarguable. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, I don't know what percentage of people probably dwindling today, but uh, I still hear it. Uh, you know, the big book wasn't written by humans, was no, divinely yeah. inspired. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, there are intelligent people that believe that. Sure they do. And there are uh, the majority, fortunately, of people who do believe in God don't believe that God wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Bob, can you come and talk to us again soon? I'd love to. This was fun. Okay, okay. See you online. Great. Hi, this is Erica Spiegelman, author of Rewired, A Bold New Approach to Addiction and Recovery, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Listening to that again, it would be good to have Bob back here. We were in a classroom at the U of T. We were talking there, and we were cut short because one of the 17 AA meetings that is held in the Ontario Institute of Studies and Education uh, building on Bloor Street was just about to have one of its... 17 meetings. In mid-sentence almost, the member of the U of T group had come in with their group supplies and they were setting up. So Bob and I uh, made our way out and uh, hopefully we'll uh, chat again. So Bob, until next time, if you're not already intimately familiar with Bob's blogs, visit aabeyondbelief.com or aaagnostica.org I urge you to get to know him better. And his book, Key Players in AA History, can be found on the bookstore page of rebelliondogspublishing.com or get it with your next purchase from Amazon. So if Bob inspired you to write your own book, I would encourage you to do the same. I'll share a little about my experience with Beyond Belief, Agnostic Musings for 12-Step Life, especially in our next show. Briefly, uh, Beyond Belief uh, was written in January 2013, or published then. (laughs) It took, uh, I don't know, five to seven years to write. And three years later, we reached a milestone, 5,000 copies sold. I'm delighted 
and I'm humbled. Now, the larger addiction recovery daily reflection market is 800,000 new books sold every year in that universe. Melanie Beattie has a great book. Uh, we know Hazelton has uh, books, a 24-hour uh, a day. AA has its own, NA has its own, on and on it goes. The work we've done, while significant for those of whom it matters, is unnoticed by the larger industry and community. I might have mentioned this earlier, but it took us three years to sell 5,000 copies of Beyond Belief. AA moves 5,000 copies of Daily Reflections every 11 days and has done so uh, for all three years that uh, Rebellion Dogs offering has been around. Uh, paperbacks have been your preference over ebooks. 73% buy paperbacks, 27% uh, buy the ebook, ePubs, or the Kindle version. This year, more people have bought both, have one on their smartphone to access anywhere and one on their bedside table or to bring to meetings. So next show, we'll talk about not just the recovery addiction genre, but the whole $11 billion self-help genre. Be you consumer, contributor, or both, you'll find next week's episode very interesting. Already taken some notes on it. The old school way of working with a publisher, agent, uh, publicist, etc., it's still very viable. Uh, but the DIY, do-it-yourself, is worth looking at too. Just like all renters aren't renting because they can't afford to buy a house, not all self-published authors are publishing house rejects. Sometimes it's a matter of style or taste. It's a lifestyle choice whether to buy or rent a house, and it's a business decision in some cases to go with a publisher or do it yourself. Renting has advantages, buying has advantages. Uh, enough with that analogy. <laughs> Being your own boss is great. Having someone else do the work is great too. We heard from Jack Grisham, episode 19. He authored A Principle of Recovery, and he said it's great to be able to swear on the pages he writes. And he doesn't want any flack from editorial staff. There are other things, too, in terms of freedom that one gives up with a book deal. I know authors who have disagreed strongly with the cover of the book, but it wasn't their decision to make. I've heard from authors scheduling their world, their family life, and their work life around a release date, only to have it pushed back six months because the publisher inked a deal with a similar author on a similar topic who has more traction with critics and fans. Ernie Kurtz and Catherine Ketchum signed a deal for the spirituality of imperfection. I'll let him tell you this story. This is a segment, a small segment, from a three-part series called Reflections with William White and Dr. Ernie Kurtz. While he needs no introduction, I'll let Ernie tell the story. Ernie, let me, let me transition, if we can, from... The, the, the concentrated work on not God and the work that's followed that to the work on spirituality. Mm. I'm very interested in how the work on that led to spirituality of imperfection began. Again, it's one of those AA coincidences, I think. Uh, I was interested, I was looking at the steps and especially with the burgeoning of therapy in the late 
mid to late 1980s, the spirituality that was conveyed by the steps, it struck me, was, was the significant thing. And because I had some background theology, I had spent years in the seminary and then was a teaching fellow at Harvard Divinity School as sort of a sport during the, mm -hmm. while I was there, because one of my mentors was on the faculty there. Um, I, I was interested in developing this, this thought, this line of thought. And I mentioned this to Father Jim Royce, a Jesuit priest who started the first college-level alcohol studies program at Seattle University. And, one of uh, the grand figures in our Yeah, field. one of the, okay, that, with yeah. ethics, especially yes. with Dr. Yes. Bissell. Anyway, so he knew I was interested in this, and I chatted with him. I mean, if you're going to write about spirituality, you better talk to a Jesuit priest someplace <laughs> along the line. And, and so he knew this, and uh, this woman who lived in Walla Walla, Washington, of all places, Kathy Ketchum, had been Jim Milam's co-author in the book Under the Influence. Oh, yes. And Kathy sort of had the same sense coming out of that, that what, what that book lacked was something about spirituality. She didn't know a lot about it, but had that sense from the people she met. And so she, hearing that Father Royce, and of course Jesuit priest, he must know about spirituality, she called him and asked him, would you know, he care to work with her in, on a project like this? And Jim said, no, but I think I know somebody I should call. And Kathy called me. And, you know, has this raised this possibility as a professional co-author, a skilled writer, uh, contact with an agent? And uh, so I, I was doing a lot of presenting at that time, and I had some connections with the Veterans Administration. There's a VA hospital in Walla Walla, and I pulled a few strings, and the VA invited me to give a presentation to the VA hospital <laughs> in, Walla Walla. in Walla Walla for their staff and, and live people. And Kathy came along, and I gave this... I always give things orally before I write them. I'm a speaker before I am a writer, which is one reason I've published so little, probably, uh, especially since I've been off the road. But uh, Kathy sat in the back scribbling furiously all during the, the workshop that I was giving. And at the end, she said, I, you know, I think we've got to go. And I stayed and I, for either two or three more days, I forget. And, I was in a hotel, and she came, and she just spent the whole, she spent about 16 hours of the day with me. I thought, her husband was so marvelously tolerant, I thought so trusting. And we just, we just, you know, we hammered out an outline, decided what we were going to do, and I went back to, uh, I was living in Oxford, Michigan at the time, mm -hmm. and she went back to her home in Walla Walla, and uh, we started exchanging manuscripts. This was the days really before email, uh, and so while we wrote on computers, and that guy was written on a typewriter, by the way. Yeah. Some people fail to realize how old I am. We sent, we'd mail back and forth using all the Express agencies. And uh, I can be difficult to work with. I just asked Kathy. I think I only had to send her flowers four times during our, our relationship. Where I realized that I had, had said something hurtful to her. Um, but we... She is very thick-skinned, and we hammered out the book that became The Spirituality of Imperfection, which amazingly, it was published first in 1992, and there were six books published that year on spirituality. And because the uh, editor at Bantam who had purchased our book left Bantam at just that time to go to, there was, our book received no publicity, no, not one advertisement. And you know, these other books came out with large names attached to them. And uh, what do you do? <laughs> so you play the hand you're dealt. And, uh, but you know, I'm fascinated. So it caught on. It's the only book published in 1992, though, it's still in print. I and mean, if you go to Amazon, it still will rank sometimes around the, between 2,000 and 3,000 in sales on a given day, which is 
That book tapped such a nerve in the culture, and I'm wondering if you have any sense of what it was that book, you know, sort of tapped in terms of the res incredibly broad response to that book. It seemed to really meet a kind of unique need for this culture at that, at that time and continues to do so. I think there are two things, and it's exactly like AA. First of all, the book is a book of stories. There are 99 stories in that book. Yeah. It's not a book of exposition. Uh, I had especially a lot of rabbinic stories. Many people think that I'm Jewish. I'm, I'm Catholic if anyone's interested. Um, but I uh, had experience with rabbi friends who told me stories way back, and, and these stories lingered in your memory, and I went out and sought them in, the, in my memory. I verified by looking them up in places. And uh, so I think this, the fact that the stories, uh, rather than the book being just expository, uh, Whatever it had to say was mainly conveyed by stories, I think, is the first, mm -hmm. which again, this is AA, which you learn from AA. Yeah. And then the second is, I think the book did convey spirituality. I think there is, if you will pardon the metaphor, a thirst for spirituality mm -hmm. in the culture. And yet, spirituality comes so often packaged in unattractive ways, uh, you know, the overt, aggressive, um, mm -hmm extreme, one extreme or the other, and mm -hmm. just turns off people. And this, I, th I think to, to the extent, again, following the example of AA and avoiding things that were extraneous, list, the themes of that book came from what I got by listening at meetings. Mm -hmm. And that basically, uh, I kept going to AA and kept listening at meetings. For one thing, I found it tremendously personally enriching my own life. I also I study, I cannot not study something is what it amounts to. And I started hearing these themes and, 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 and so I, I took those themes and wrote about those themes. The interesting thing is, you know, 1992, 2007, I've kept going to meetings. And I would revise those themes at this point. I'm not sure. Could we talk some about those themes and, and elaborate on some of those and how, how your view of those have changed over time? Well, the key, yeah, that, that sort of, uh, you know, what is spirituality? How do you recognize spirituality? Spirituality cannot be defined. It has to be experienced. And you know, one of the stories, the, one of the, the, the masters, uh, you know, the students saying, you know, can, can you, if you cannot explain it, it, it is not real. And the master saying, you know, do you know the smell of a rose? Explain it. <laughs> uh, you know, this, there, are, there are things we cannot explain and spirituality is one of them. So they, we see them in certain qualities and experiences and one is the sense of release, the sense of being freed, which usually only comes by letting go of something, by freeing something. Mm -hmm. and I think this is so clear, especially in alcoholism, the, the admission of powerlessness is the letting go of the need to be in control, from which comes this tremendous sense of freedom. And if, again, if you listen to the stories told by these people who are glowing with sobriety, so there's this, this release. Another, there's this sense, this twofold thing. I have been freed. Mm -hmm. Alcohol is a savage master for those addicted to it, any substance. Mm -hmm. And the sense of being freed from that, that cunning, baffling, mm -hmm. powerful master, uh, which, which comes by letting go. Mm -hmm. And most people not necessarily make that connection, but if you listen to their stories, that's yeah. there. Yeah. You know, you, you can't even say which comes first, but you always hear both. There is both an experience of, I have been freed. 
not that I've won my freedom, I have mm -hmm. been freed. Mm -hmm. And also the experience of having let go of something that they thought they absolutely needed. Mm -hmm. This is what very, in the other chronic conditions very often is a very important thing, mm -hmm. even more so than the alcoholic letting go of the, of the alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then I think the second one which flows from that is a sense of gratitude. The problem is the word gratitude is used so often in our culture and gratitude is one of those realities that while you're naming it, you're now experiencing it. Gratitude is the recognition of gift. And we have so many occasions for gifts created by the greeting card manufacturers <laughs> and the candy makers that people have lost the sense of A gift is something freely and spontaneously given and recognizing that one has received a gift. That's gratitude. Freely and spontaneously given. If I give my wife a diamond necklace for her anniversary, this is marvelous, and I'm sure she'd be very happy. I'm sure she'd wonder where I stole it. But, you know, <laughs> but if, if I stop, I'm on my way home from shopping, and there's someone selling roses on the corner, and I, I buy a bunch of roses and bring them home and say, you know, here, these are because I love you. That's, That's far more meaningful to her. In, yeah. in, if you can... I mean, it's, it's a, a gift is something freely and spontaneously given. And those who achieve sobriety, it's a gift. I mean, they've tried so hard, they've struggled so hard that in this release, then they recognize gift. Mm -hmm. Gratitude is the ability, then we recognize the gifts others give us. Mm -hmm. That we, we are so gifted. Mm -hmm. And in the sense of entitlement with which we're and, and the sense of occasioning things, you know, this control thing that we, we lose the sense of gift. And one of the great gifts of this spirituality is to again become capable of recognizing gift. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that uh, these things become almost ineffable because they are spiritual. Mm -hmm. Humility, this, the giving up of the sense of being special or exceptional. I mean, the alcoholic you know, is the center of his or her own uni universe. You know, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our problems. Harry Tebow's diagnosis of the alcoholic is his majesty, the baby. Right. Uh, this, uh, and humility is a giving up of this sense of, but I'm different. The sense of exceptionality. I'm unique. And this, what this allows is a rejoining of the human race. At the end of one of the discussion of the steps in the 12 and 12, rejoining the human race. And so this is where one becomes capable of fitting in, belonging to a group in the sense of needing the group. This, mm -hmm. this is all related to humility. Humility is not, you know, obeisances, getting down in the mud. Or Humility is this recognition of there's nothing special, especially. I'm not, I'm not different. And, and I can fit in there for, I belong. Mm -hmm. The alcoholic never is at home. So I let the tape run a little longer than I planned. Isn't he a great storyteller? Uh, both about signing a publishing deal. Uh, sometimes uh, those things, uh, you don't find in marriage what was promised in engagement. Uh, but he talked also about uh, spirituality, about uh, gratitude and humility. Uh, go visit williamwhitepapers.com for more information on this three-part series called Reflections. You can see them all for free online. Next show, I'll talk about uh, the whole self-help biz. Uh, and um, a lot of that came about by some articles I've read and a book I'm reading uh, called Promised Land, My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture. I'll tell you all about the book 
uh, next week. Uh, so it's kind of a criticism of the chicken soup for the inclined towards magical thinking consumer. The book's author, Jessica Lam Shapiro, wrote in May 2015 a New York Times article called I Was Raised by Psychotherapists, and she shares the following. Being a child of psychotherapists is no fun. For one thing, you're surrounded by books, like The Anatomy of Melancholy, or I'm Okay, You're Okay. What other families call love is known in yours as attachment theory. You are both over-scrutinized by your parents and in competition for attention with their patients, whose problems are often more pressing and always more lucrative. Your parents are paid to listen to other people cry. The only upside is that it's very easy to get your friend's parents to feel sorry for you and that their pity sometimes takes the form of free candy. I have four therapist parents. One of them, my father, was biologically related to me because of my mother's early death and a series of marriages and divorces and custody battles and other well-intentioned disasters. So it came to me that in the early 1980s, I was living part-time with my adoptive mother, my father's second wife, who adopted me but then divorced my father, and her second husband, both of whom, inconveniently for all of us, saw their patients at home. The fourth therapist, if you're counting, was my father's third wife. Uh, Next week we'll have more from Jessica Lamb Shapiro. If you can join me in Sedona for the Symposium on AA History, it'll be, like I said, it's spring break for AA geeks. I'm very excited. Uh, There's a link to the event at rebelliondogspublishing.com. The topics include Marty Mann, Lois Wilson, Charles Town, Jay Stinnett is doing From Psychic to Psychedelic, a look at Bill Wilson as a sage or hippie, I guess. I haven't seen his script yet. We look at uh, AA and the Armed Forces and how that spread AA internationally. There's more on people of color in the LGBT community. I, of course, will be doing Unbelievers in AA and sharing some of that research from GSO. So I'm going to the desert. It's a trip without peyote for geeks like, well, like Bob Kay and me. I hope you can make it. If you can't, uh, I'll let you know all about it uh, later this year. Until next time, see you in the rooms or see you online. Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio.